Good morning, everybody. Last week, we looked at um, the problems of progressive Christianity, and we're looking at a couple of uh, the, the cultural influences on Christianity uh, in our series here on the mission of the church. And this week, we're looking at the problems of Christian nationalism. Now, up until recently, um, I kind of perceived Christians that were in pursuit of political power or seeking to uh, turn America back to an era where that more reflected um, with their views of God and what the culture should be like as, as the religious right. That's kind of what they were referred to in our culture. Um, and it, the, my, my perception is that uh, the religious right were kind of unclear on what exactly our mission was in our culture. Um, and how to posture themselves. It was it overwhelmingly had a, a perspective of um, voting in people into public office that would pursue then kind of a, a biblical agenda. And I also thought that there was an unbalanced view of what the Christian influence was in the, in the early colonies, early British colonies, and in the founding of America. And these were, the religious right was a powerful force in, a, in American politics from the 80s up through the early 2000s, but in my eyes, it kind of was declining under uh, President Obama. But since the, um, just the candidacy and the election of Donald Trump, the, the influence grew and really has surprised everybody. I mean, one of the things I think that, you know, if you've, if you've paid attention to some of those things uh, through the candidacy and the presidency of, of Donald Trump, um, there was a surprise of, of, around the evangelical or the perceived evangelical support for, for Donald Trump. And then that surprise, I think, was um, you know, most seen in the, in the insurrection on January 6th, which was an, an effort to interrupt the proceedings that were certifying the, the election of President Biden. Um, and, and the perceptions at that time and the perceptions since then was that, that that insurrection, that effort to interrupt the proceedings to certify the election for President Biden was Christian nationalism. And uh, there was a, a, an op-ed writer in the New York Times, so not a conservative paper, um, said his, the, the title of his story was, The Capital Insurrection Was As Christian Nationalist As It Gets. And, you know, regardless of how you interpreted that or regardless of what you were reading, that was kind of the perception across the board. And, and I think that we have to ask ourselves the question, what, is, what else is anybody supposed to interpret when they are seeing uh, pictures of people with 10-foot-tall wooden crosses um, praying in the name of Jesus uh, during this insurrection in, in the crowds? Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of growing books and scholarship and articles on Christian nationalism over the last few years. Last year, a book was written. It's considered the, the, really the first empirical examination of Christian nationalism in the U.S. The book's called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. And so what I want to do today is we're, I'm going to rely on this book because it's kind of considered the, the authority in this matter. But there's some important questions that we as Christians 
um, we as evangelical Christians, it's, there's some things that are important for us to understand about what this movement is. There's some, poor, there's some important things that our entire culture needs to understand about, this, about what this movement is. There's a perception that it's predominantly um, a white evangelical Republican movement. And um, that's not entirely correct, and we're going to see why. But what, we, what I want to do today is I want to identify what are the beliefs and the mission of those who would consider themselves Christian nationalists. What is it that makes someone a Christian nationalist? Um, who are those people? Uh, what are the positive aspects? We looked last week, what are the positive things of Christian progressivism? And so this week we want to look at one of, what are the, some of the positive things are. And we also want to look at the problems and then how does this affect and make us think about our own mission here in the United States. So, you know, these, these, these messages on culture, so on our series here on the mission of the church, the first four messages were solidly um, biblical theology. What, is the, what are the scriptures, what are the teachings of Jesus Christ say about who are we as a church and what we should be doing? And then we've got four messages on culture. And so the content is going to be largely an interpretation and explanation of our culture and then some perspective on our mission because of that. So these messages here in the middle are a little bit different. And so here's, what, here's the definition. Here's how Here's how this book, uh, Whitehead and Perry are the authors. Here the, here's how they define Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that blurs distinctions between Christian identity and American identity. Viewing the two, okay, Christian identity and American identity, viewing the two as closely related and seeking to enhance and preserve the union of those two things, Christian identity and American identity. It's undergirded by the identification with a conservative political orientation, though not necessarily a political party, Bible belief, premillennial visions of moral decay, and a divine sanction for conquest. So we're going to look a little bit about, uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of work through each one of these elements, okay? It's a cultural, at the core, it's a cultural framework that blends Christian identity and American identity, and then there are some, some characteristics of that. So one of the characteristics, conservative political orientation. So it's a social, and there's a, there's a social and economic conservatism to it that's kind of reflected, well, it's strongly reflected with a Christian understanding, but also um, an aspect that is predominantly white, representing what they perceive to be an ideal culture. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this later when we start looking at the problems. Um, but because of the culture that they see as ideal, that culture happens to be predominantly white. They see that cultures representing other nations or other races or other religions are undermining to the culture of what the, what the Christian nationalists are promoting and advocating. And that, the, that, the, it's, that if you hold to Christian nationalism views, that view in particular is a strong, strong predictor of these 
pretty significant, what we would say, cultural issues. So your view on Christian nationalism has more to say about these things than your political orientation. Race, gender, immigration, gun rights, Islam, family, and sexuality. So it's not Republican or conservative politics that is a major indicator on those things. It's where you're at in regard to Christian nationalism. And so what these authors are arguing is that Christian nationalism is, is it's kind of its own thing that you can't put in one of the dominant camps. And it's kind of been, um, I don't want to say ignored, it just hasn't been perceived as, the, as a total package ideology that it now is being perceived as. Second, okay, so there's a conservative political orientation. Second, what are the perspectives of the Bible? And so there's an affirmation of the Bible, but it's not so much an affirmation of like Christian teachings. It's more of an affirmation of the Bible that looks to the Old Testament and compares America with Old Testament Israel and sees America as this promised land or holy nation that's, that's blessed when it's following God and that's cursed when it's not following God. And that there's a, there's a fidelity to this uh, moral code like the Ten Commandments, um, but equal to that fidelity to a moral code is also fidelity to the nation, like patriotism, okay? So your, your loyalty and allegiance to America is considered loyalty and allegiance to, to God, okay? Third, perceptions of moral decay. So Christian nationalists look out into our world and they see that it's, it's just all continuing to crumble and decay, particularly American culture. All right, so there's this, there's this reactive nature to it. So if you remember uh, the first message that we did on culture um, was looking at those four different quadrants of how Christian traditions approach culture. And the, there's two axes, and one of the axes was your perception of how much good there is in the world. And the uh, Christian right, or we would put the Christian nationalists, Tim Keller did not have that as a category, um, would be in that lower half that perceived the world to be falling apart. And then also on the right side of believing that you've got something to do to fix that. And the fourth thing, so there's, there's this political conservatism, there's an, a belief in kind of the Old Testament perspective of God seeing America as a holy nation. You see the world falling apart, which then leads to number four, especially if, if you believe that you have a responsibility to change it, there's a divine sanction of conquest. What that means is that you believe that God has given you the moral authority to use violence when necessary to accomplish your purposes in promoting Christian nationalism. Much like would have been much like is seen when you're reading the Old Testament, God used the nation of Israel to punish idolatrous and wicked and violent nations. So those are the four characteristics of this big idea that sees American identity and Christian identity as fused together, all right? So the authors of this book identified four categories 
of Christian nationalists. There are the rejectors, the people in America that are strongly opposed to Christian nationalism. There are those who are called resistors, okay? They don't buy into the ideas of Christian nationalism. They're not as stringently opposed, activist opposed as the rejectors are, but they really don't want to have anything to do with it. The resistors and the rejectors make up about 48% of the country, right? Now, then there are the ambassadors, which would be the strong proponents of Christian nationalism, called ambassadors. It's about 20% of the country. The last group, the accommodators, are people that wouldn't necessarily be the strong advocates, but they kind of get it and they kind of affirm it. They say, yeah, America's on the decline. You know, the, the, the culture that the founders tried to create and did create is more of an ideal thing from a political and moral standpoint. We won't be strong advocates of it, but we're certainly not going to resist it. We'll, we'll accommodate it. All right, so you have, it's about a 50-50 split. 48% oppose, 52% are for, with a third of the country, all right, accommodating it, which is a large percentage. And 20% strong advocates. Now, the strong advocates, so they've been asking the questions and doing these studies about this particular idea um, since the, it's like 2007, I think. There has been a decline in the number of people that hold to those views strongly. But an increase in influence because, <clears throat> well, like anybody that believes they're threatened, you start fighting more. And that's what's happened over the last few years. And so what I want to do is take those four categories, and really I'm going to look at those who are opposed and those who accommodate and those who are strong ambassadors in three different areas. Because I think it's going to be very surprising because, and this is the reason why we chose to do this message. Like I said at the beginning, the perception is that Christian nationalists are white evangelical Republicans. I mean, that's the consensus that you get from the media. And it's not accurate. So we're going to look at race, we're going to look at religion, and we're going to look at um, politics. So who make up the people that would be considered Christian nationalists? So let's look at race first. 49% of white people oppose Christian nationalism versus 51% are somehow supporting either the accommodators or the ambassadors. African Americans, 17% of African Americans oppose Christian nationalism. 46% are accommodators and 21% are ambassadors. So there are, a, of African Americans, there are more who would fit into the accommodating and fully advocating for Christian nationalism. Of Hispanics, 51% are opposed, and the remainder are either accommodating or supportive. 
Other races, 55% oppose, and the remainder are somewhat supporting. And so what we see here is that Christian nationalism cannot be easily defined by narrow identity politics. There are more African Americans from a percentage standpoint, not in terms of actual numbers, but a greater percentage of African Americans and about the same percentage of Hispanics as there are white people. And so it's not just, it's not a racial thing. Race is a part, but it's also, there are some, other, some ideas about what's going on in our, in, our, in our culture. So white supremacy is not an aspect, it's, it's not the, one of the defining aspects of it. Okay, when we look at religion, 25% of evangelical Protestants oppose it. 75% are in favor, that's not completely surprising. Of mainline Protestants, okay, the people that all wouldn't at all generally be considered as evangelical, um, 48% are opposed to Christian nationalism, with 52% of mainline Protestants are somehow supportive of Christian nationalism. Black Protestants, one-third opposed, with two-thirds supporting. Catholics, 44% oppose. Jews, 80% oppose. Uh, other religions, 60% oppose. Unaffiliated, growing population in our culture, 87% oppose. But what this shows us is that Christian nationalists, um, to see Christian nationalists as primarily evangelicals is incorrect. The majority of all Christian traditions are in favor of Christian nationalism. More mainline Protestants, more evangelicals, more Catholics. And that the percentage of black Protestants is only 10% less than the percentage of white evangelicals that are supportive. So the last one, politics. Republicans, 20% opposed, 80% supportive. That's not surprising. But Democrats, there are 38% of Democrats that are supportive of these ideals. And independents, there are 42% that are supportive. And so again, it's not strictly white, evangelical, Republican. The ideas of Christian nationalism, whether as being advocated or, or, or just uh, accommodating, um, are across the spectrum in regard to race, in regard to politics, in regard to religion. And they're spread over the entire country. There are more in the Midwest and in the South than there are on, the, on, the, on either coasts. But really, uh, those who either accommodate or fully advocate Christian nationalism uh, don't fit into any of the contemporary boxes that we hear from the media. Now, when you look at religious practice, Christian nationalists will hold to the same values as those who strongly advocate religious practices um, in regard to belief in God, uh, the need to teach morals, and the need to share your faith and evangelize. But Christian nationalists, compared to other Christians who strongly advocate religious practice are not in the same place in these areas. 
care for the sick and needy among Christian nationalists as this is a Christian value, caring for the sick and needy. The response was so negligible that it was statistically, um, uh, what's the word? There you go, statistically insignificant, all right? Care for the sick and needy, as well as the pursuit of social and economic justice, as well as the pursuit of being frugal and mindful of of our buying and and using of things. Um, And so the statistics were insignificant from the Christian nationalists as with those things being important aspects of, of Christian practice, whereas... Other Christians who didn't identify with Christian nationalism held those things in high regard. The fourth thing, service in the military. So Christian nationalists believe it's a moral imperative to serve in the military. Or it's, a, it's, a, it's an extension of your practice as a Christian, whereas that wasn't at all. That was insignificant for, the, um, for those devoted in other forms of Christian practice. And so how do we look at these things? Well, I think that we do need to recognize some good aspects. Christian nationalists do believe and recognize that God is supreme over all things. All right, Psalm 2 says, for the nations of the world, the kings of the nations of the world, to kiss the son, the anointed king, that the scriptures later reveal to be Jesus Christ, in, to escape the wrath that he will pour out when he returns. So we see the scriptures encouraging the leaders of the world to embrace Jesus Christ. And I think it's also a good thing for we as Christians to engage the political process as we are able in regard to a vocation, okay, as individuals called to to politics, to government, to advocacy. It's a good vocation because God is using governments to establish justice and peace in this world. It's a good thing for Christians to want to be a part of that process. We all have a responsibility to look towards a just and fair society, and some of us are called to particular vocations to do that. Now, as Christians, we need a clear understanding about what biblical justice is. And I think that's one of the weaknesses that we have right now as Christians is that we we don't have a clear perspective of what justice in this world is supposed to look like. So we, we tend to lean towards one side, the left's perspective of justice in this world or the right's perspective of justice in this world. There is a distinct Christian perspective of justice, and we're going to spend some time on that a little bit throughout this series, but then also in this series on racism that we're doing in the summer. Now, so those are the, those are the things that I believe that are good, and, and there may be other things as well, but those I think are the two distinct things that we need to highlight. Now, what are its problems? What are its problems? Well, it has some. And I believe that the problems of Christian nationalism are just as threatening and destructive as those within progressive Christianity. First of all, the belief that America has a status as a nation, as favored by God, is not biblical. It's just not. 
biblically, only Israel has ever been in that place. And at this point, Israel as a nation is hardened and have been sidelined in regard to what God is doing now in the world. They are not in a place of divine favor for God to carry out his purposes through as they were prior to Christ. And it was their rejection of Christ, it was the rejection of their king that put them into that hardened state. At this point in the world, from a biblical standpoint, there is no nation that has God's favor over other nations. The early British colonies, some of them, some of them, did have a distinct Christian vision for what they wanted to do as a community based upon what John Calvin had done in the city of Geneva in Switzerland. Right? But it wasn't a vision to establish an entire nation. These were British citizens. They were not thinking of starting a new nation. That happened later. That happened later. Um, so the early, the early colonies, not all of them had a Christian vision, and they weren't attempting to create a Christian nation. Now, I'm not saying God wasn't calling that community of people to come over and try to establish what they did. I'm not saying that God didn't call them to that or put that on their hearts. What I'm saying is that it wasn't God's purpose to establish America as a Christian nation. It's just not, it's just not biblically defendable. The New Testament mission, what we do have taught to us in Scripture about what Christians are to be about and what churches are to be about, is not the establishing of civil governments based upon the Mosaic Law. In fact, the New Testament Scriptures are quite clear. Um, Jesus Christ made obsolete the Mosaic Code of Israel in his death and resurrection from the dead. It says he broke down the dividing wall of ordinances, the dividing wall that separated the nation of Israel from the other nations of the world. It's been abolished. Thirdly, if you go to them to the American Revolution, the American Revolution was not an attempt to create a Christian nation. Right? The founders, in addition to Enlightenment political philosophy, saw some wisdom in the Judeo-Christian ethic and incorporated that into their ideals. However, there were at that time, and there are still, significant biblical teachings that would be opposed to the um, opposition to British rule. There was a recent book came out, edited by Mark Knoll, who's one of the foremost uh, Christian historians in our day. Uh, he's a believer, um, and he's highly regarded in both religious and secular circles. He just came out with a book, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a history of the prominent evangelical Orthodox preachers in New England that were opposed to the American Revolution based upon biblical teaching. It would be, it's hard to justify the arguments about fair representation in government, because that's one of the issues. The, the colonies weren't represented in the parliament as were the citizens of the UK. And so they wanted representation and because they wanted some say in regard to the taxes 
It would be very difficult to justify a revolution against governing authorities based upon taxes and representation. Fourth, the church as an institution has a very clear mission to advance the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel and the establishing of churches. And churches are supposed to represent the kingdom of God on earth. Not nations, not cities, not states. Churches. We as a collective cannot have as our mission the establishing of a nation. We as individuals can pursue politics and advocacy, social justice, all of these kinds of things from a from a from a vocational calling standpoint. And there are aspects of justice that we as God's people all need to, to promote as God's people. But, that, but the establishing of a nation is not, cannot be the mission of churches. Cannot be the mission of churches. So that's the first big problem, this idea that America can be or should be a nation favored by God and that we have a divine mandate. The second thing is race and culture. Now, as I've mentioned, there is a, a white supremacist orientation in the culture promoted by Christian nationalists. Now, one of the... One of the I had a good conversation with Wole this week about this. One of the aspects of the discussion and debate around race in our culture right now, one of the aspects that is missing is an understanding of culture. And the, the, one of the foremost uh, black scholars in America right now, Thomas Sowell, um, has a, a three-part series on cultures, race and culture, um, migrations and culture, and conquests in culture. And one of his arguments as a, as a black scholar is that a lot, of, a lot of the racism comes from discriminations of cultures. It's not necessarily just discriminations of people of color. It's discrimination of cultures, discrimination of nationalities, discrimination of ethnicities, discrimination of religion. And so the vision of Christian nationalism is to, kind of, is to restore America back to a, a European order and culture. Okay? The original Ameri Americans, early Americans, and for many years were Europeans. That is drastically changing. And the reaction of Christian nationalists and the desire of Christian nationalists is to restore America back to this more European type of culture, which is obviously characterized more by white people than people of color. And so, yes, there's a white supremacist, supremacist element, but it's also a cultural arrogance. It's also a cultural supremacy or an ethnic supremacy, an ethnic Arrogance. And I think that you can really see this in what's going on in France right now. There's a lot of reaction in France to a lot of the immigration and migration that has occurred. And a lot of the pushback you see by the French government and the French nationalists are opposing those aspects of other people's cultures that are different than or would change French culture, and it's interpreted as racism, uh, ethnic discrimination, religious discrimination, all of these various kinds of discrimination. And so cultural discrimination does lead to racial, ethnic, and religious discrimination. 
as God's people, as people of the kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we cannot discriminate against any of these things. We cannot favor any of these things. Whenever we make religious distinctions based on race, culture, ethnicity, class, whatever, this is what you see in the book of Galatians, there was a press to discriminate on the basis of the Mosaic law, which was a part of Jewish culture. And they, they violated the gospel in highlighting the need for the Gentile Christians to follow the Jewish Mosaic law. And so they were creating discrimination based upon a religious and ethnic discrimination. And Paul said, you have distorted the gospel. We as God's people are to set aside any preferences. We're going to have preferences. We're going to have cultural preferences. That's a part of, we are how we've been developed and shaped over years by our parents, our schools, our communities. We are going to have preference about a lot of things. The kingdom of God calls us to Lay those preferences aside for the sake of unity and love amongst the saints. That is most represented in the New Testament as all people coming together to share a meal together, which is what you see as the problem in Antioch or in Galatia or in Rome. They were not coming together in fellowship around the Lord's table because of their ethnic and religious and cultural biases believing them to be of God. Paul said, Paul said, let the man be accursed. In fact, he said, any man or any angel, anyone coming and making those distinctions distorts the gospel. He says, let that man be accursed, which is essentially let that man be thrown into the fires of hell. There is no really greater sin that you see in the New Testament. It is a complete distortion of the gospel. And so if we're advocating for a culture that has these types of discriminating practices, we have to be opposed to it. And Jesus' parable to the Pharisees and to the crowds that we read out of Luke chapter 20 really addressed the core of the problem. So there was this king... And the king went away, and he, had, he rented out his vineyard to tenants. And the king wanted those tenants to make a return on what had been grown on his land. But they kept beating up and eventually killed his son when he sent for, for some of that return. And, he says, and they said, let us kill the son, and then we'll be able to keep control over the inheritance, over the vineyard by power. Because the, the king won't be able to come and get it back from us. Their desire for ownership, their desire for power, and their desire for profit overruled their obligations to their king. 
They were, they were strong enough to disobey the king, the rightful owner of that land, and to kill his son. I see that Christian nationalism is motivated and has at the foundation the same challenges that Christian progressivism did. They are untaught, untaught in regard to what biblical Christian mission is for this time, really untaught in regard to American history. So there's an, there's an, there's an element of ignorance to it, but there's also an instability. Peter said they are unstable and untaught. Insta unstable because there are, there are passions driving their agenda. With the Christian progressives, the passions were sensuality and not wanting any restrictions, a perception of freedom. With the Christian nationalists, the, the passions are power and profit. What would the Christian nationalists done with Jesus? There were Jewish nationalists in Jesus' day. Some wanted to make him king, and Jesus ran for that, ran away from that. He withdrew from them. The leaders that were leading at present saw Jesus as a threat. And like Jesus' parable, they ended up killing him. They did not want him to be king. They had a different idea for what kingship meant for the nation of Israel. They wanted, they wanted the kingdom, and they wanted Israel on top of all of the other nations. Those who wanted to maintain their power and profit killed Jesus. And so we see, we see the same problem. And, you know, really, it's all, it always, error always comes down to licentiousness, which is I want to do anything that I want to do, or legalism, which is we're going to pile on all, tops, all types of rules and restrictions and constraints, and the more that we can discipline ourselves and create order, that's the kingdom. The, the errors are always one of those two things. And so we see here in Christian progressivism and in Christian nationalism the same two things. Christian mission is not fueled by a desire for unrestricted freedoms. It's not fueled by a desire to fulfill our sensual passions. Christian mission is not empowered by the desire for power or the desire for profit or the desire to rule over other people. Christian mission is very distinct. And its character is really embodied in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward our people. That should be how the world sees and understands us as Christians. Yes, we're going to hold firm to our teaching, but our first step forward into the world is going to be characterized by good deeds and grace, just like Jesus' was, followed by words, just like Jesus' was, proclaiming and telling people about the kingdom of God and to repent from their sins. We are Christians in a hostile world. And so a lot of the hostility is going to come from those who claim to be Christians, just as in Jesus' day. The progressives are going to call us bigots and homophobes. The nationalists are going to call us traitors and socialists. We are people of the kingdom. We are people of Jesus Christ. 
And, and we are motivated by the willingness, the willingness to suffer for the better and the good of others. That's what makes us distinct as Christians, following in the way of Christ. And when he comes back to rule and be glorified, that's when we will rule with him and be co-heirs in this world. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do acknowledge you as king. Absolutely. Over all things in heaven and on earth. We also understand, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have called us to live the life that you lived, to look suffering in the face, and to look forward to a future glory when you return. Until then, God, we understand that you've given us a mission, so we pray that you would help us to engage this mission. Help us to avoid licentiousness. Help us to avoid legalism. God, help us to hold firm to the calling that you've given to us to reflect Jesus Christ and proclaim his kingdom until you return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.